On this episode of Counter Stories, we dig into the resuming of in-person classes in Minnesota. With the pandemic still raging through our communities, is this a good time to reopen schools? This is Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group. Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of Arts Us and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Metropolitan State University in the School of Social Work and Cultural Consultant. Unfortunately, Luz was unable to join us. However, we do have a guest sitting in. Thank you for having me. This is Daniel Perez. I'm a school social worker at a Minneapolis elementary school, and I'm a loving father of two boys. Thanks for joining us. We're also joined by Jim Vu, who was appointed and then elected to the St. Paul Public School Board. Again, uh, Lee sort of introduced me already. My name is Jim Vu. I'm vice chair for St. Paul Public Schools Board of Education. And the work that I primarily, the lens by which I normally do my work from is that of a Hmong father. Thanks for joining us. So um, we've all either heard of or lived horror stories around distance learning. Um, from both parents, students, and educators, I've heard, I've heard horror stories. Governor Walls announced that schools throughout the state could resume in-person learning after January 18th. And every school district is different. Some school districts are already back to school. Some are planning to open soon. Um, and so from y'all's perspective, how is this impacting your family? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm, I'm a father of two. I have a nine and an eight-year-old, um, both who are, are are very social. And, and, and if you listen to our, our previous podcast, I actually ended up having to, we had to, we'd made a decision as a family to take them on a bug out kind of reset to Yellowstone, rented an RV and, and recorded our journey that way. And we did another one. And, and we did that largely because they were struggling, not with the social side of not being in school because uh, we are in a household where we have to take some very special considerations for exposure to COVID. So we really had to quarantine. Then the response came about schools reopening and my kids went through another round of, of all of the emotions because a bunch of their classmates, at least at the time, um, seemed like they were going to be going back to school and they weren't and they understood why and they knew why it was important to protect grandma and all the folks in the household. And at the same time, they were going to be in the class. And so we got a reset of all of the emotions. Um, and then come to find out uh, as we've gotten uh, looked at who's who's coming in, that a lot of their friends that they were really close to anyway, have all chosen uh, virtual learning still anyway. And so they've just been on this kind of roller coaster space. So we're, we're dealing with every single emotion in this household. For me and my family, it's, it's a mixed bag. I'm working full time from home. My wife actually had to go on unemployment because our childcare closed. And so both boys are home and we, you know, just kept them home since the pandemic. We also have my parents living with us, and that's a blessing and also a lot of work. Just balancing all of these things. When I think about returning to in-person, personally, there's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of grief, a lot of apprehension. There's a lot of anxiety, jumping through many phases and kind of being abrupt about it. Of course, it was a response to go Governor Waltz. The pandemic has been around, at least in the United States, since March, and that's when we've closed. And I think I've seen very little communication and partnership between teachers and districts 
me as an educator, I'm feeling exasperated with the way we are being sent back to in-person learning without a lot of answers, with a lot of hesitations. I'm not vaccinated yet. The vaccine is rolling out, but we don't have enough vaccines. My parents, I'm Latino. My parents are Latino. We're in the tier five category. My mom already has many pre-existing conditions that could potentially lead her to hospitalization and death. Same with my dad. So it's, it's a roller coaster. And personally, I've, I've asked for a leave of absence. I've been undocumented and I know what, it, what it's like to take calculated risk. And this is a risk that I cannot afford to take. All right, so a little bit of background about me. I have two sons, uh, one is in eighth grade, one is in seventh grade. And I have uh, a daughter who's in third grade. And then I have a baby who's one years old going on too. So last year when um, we first, we did our first go around of distance learning, wasn't that bad. Uh, my baby wasn't really walking yet. She was kind of stationary. <laughs> This year is totally different. The second I start a lesson with my kids, she's like climbing the table, <laughs> you know, grabbing up the pencils. Uh, that's a different ball game right there between last year and this year. Um, in addition to that, my two sons and my daughter, they all have special needs. And last year we were able to work around some of those things, but um, over time you start to see uh, how, how they are once they stop getting those services in the way that they normally get them, you know? And just getting them to do work is, it, on a day-to-day -day basis is a challenge. Uh, for example, I can't do more than maybe two lessons in a row with them. And they have like seven courses that they got to go through, right? They don't do that. They don't do all seven of them every day. They have like an A day and a B day. But uh, even then, it's tough to transition from one, one thing to another. Um, it's tough to get them all into their... Uh, Zoom meetings, their Google Meets, they're all like running concurrently into their Zoom uh, meetings. My wife and I can do it, but um, it's not really sustainable. And in addition to that, um, we still have to take care of ourselves. We have to maintain ourselves. We have to maintain our health. And I think our situation is a little bit different. You know, we don't have elders, grandparents living in our family. It's just my wife and my kids. Um, we do we do a good job of social distancing. Whenever we go out to the community, it's always just my wife and I making runs. We normally don't take our kids. So I feel like uh, we've trained our kids fairly well about wearing masks and social distancing and um, having them understand the impact of COVID in their world right now. And that's kind of why I'm in the boat of sending my kids to back into the school. My perspective is is a little different, but I do have a daughter who is in school. You know, she unfortunately was a senior in high school when COVID hit. And as parents, we we had to emotionally so support her because she pretty much lost her senior year. You know, we agonized over what many parents are agonizing over now, what I heard Anthony talk about, what I heard Daniel talk about because my daughter wanted to go to university, to college. And she insisted on going to a, a college where she could go on campus. She just returned back to campus the beginning of this week. So she was here from November until the beginning of this week, 
and not once did she step foot in the house. And she ended up staying with her older brother, who has a home in, in South Minneapolis, in order to protect me and my wife, Mara. We're still dealing with the impact of COVID. As a member, as an elder of a member of my tribe, um, I was fortunate to be offered the vaccine um, as a faculty member at Metropolitan State University. You know, at, in our administration, we're already talking about how classes are going to be taught this coming fall. I happened to be on sabbatical when COVID hit last spring. So I didn't have to deal with the transition of going from in-person classroom to online platform until I returned this past fall. And it was a headache. Um, I'm now starting my second semester doing Zoom classes. And it's like looking at the old TV program, The Brady Bunch. You have all those squares in front of you. Half the cameras are turned on. And, you know, and then the other half aren't. And, and so you're talking. And when you ask questions, no one responds. And, you know, so they have the chat function. But, you know, I'm an older guy, so I can barely manage my Zoom and my, you know, in, in my setting, let alone check chat and everything else to keep the conversations going. And and the experience has been one where, where that cohesiveness, that piece of not being together with others, the same things you're talking about your children are going through and that they're missing, not being around their friends, not building upon those relationships that are so important, but then at the same time, understanding the importance of what it means to be COVID-free and not pick up and not be in and place yourself in a situation where you could bring that home to your family or to others. And so that's a very tough, tough situation to be in. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Halee Lee with crew members Don Eubanks and Anthony Galloway and our special guests Daniel Perez and Jim Vu. We receive support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. You know, Don, you 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 bring up especially the high risk. I mean, the the what I heard you say about your daughter not stepping foot in the house after being like I just that that's getting to me and and that level of precaution and adjustment is something that we've had to make you know um my grandmother Gigi <laughs> grandma for great grandma they call her Gigi you know we we I think for her birthday we we tried to camp out in her backyard in tents so that we could just be you know close enough outside socially distant and have some kind of you know look at interaction and and just when we thought we were settled and that that seemed to work I got sick two days later enough to have to, to be concerned that it was COVID. Now, thankfully, because of the testing that was opened up at Roy Wilkins Auditorium, I walked in, got a test, got the results in 48 hours. And now we've got a routine, right? We know if we have an exposure. And so, but it scared me to death to think that I might have brought that to, to our house, you know, and then now, now that we've got a routine and we've actually managed on the social side to find a bubble of parents who are taking similar precautions 
that we can have, you know, some outdoor play. Um, even in the winter, you know, we used to sled. We, we really learned how to be Minnesotans this year um, and, and, you know, in, in doing and connecting that. And we potted up with folks who were taking similar precautions and who were leaning on us and and um, and would go to 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 whatever lengths we could to have our kids interact with each other. So they've got some social interaction with with in family pod and in socially distant friend pods. And we were actually coming to the idea of connecting with other parents and saying, let's let's have two two or three days where this small group of like four kids could interact with each other. And we just, we'll just figure out a way to have that pie. Like it's socially distant. You're still doing your school work together, but they get that interaction and we're taking an exposure risk, but it's, it's, it's really controlled. When it came time to going back to school, we, we are having trouble with that. That you guys are doing that, but I think it's also not like a practical thing that every parent is going to be able to do. Um, Jim, what are some of the things that you're hearing um, from parents, some of their concerns? Sure. Um, you know, first of all, I want to emphasize what Anthony said about choice. You know, um, one of the approaches that St. Paul Public Schools has taken in opening their schools is providing, continuing to provide the virtual learning option as well as the in-person. So recently I had a phone town hall meeting uh, around that topic that, that emphasizes your choice. And the whole idea of around the, the Hmong town hall meeting was to inform parents of if you choose to go in person, it's not going to be the in-person that it was before COVID. You know, the teachers will be wearing PPE. Uh, we're going to enforce three feet to six uh, feet of distance or more. Um, you're going to be eating lunchroom in your classroom. Bus busing will be differently and vice versa. Your virtual teachers, that they might change because some of those very same teachers will be the teachers teaching the um, in-person classes and then you will get a different teacher with virtual learning. So, you know, the whole point of that was to have to have our our families, our home families, understand that every family situation is different, right? So we're going to give you this information so you can take this information, adapt it to what your family needs are. And I'm hearing a lot of things from Daniel, from Anthony, and from Don about their particular family situations, and they're informed about their family situation. They're taking this information. They're making the best choice that's right for their family, and. That's kind of what I want to emphasize uh, as we go forward here, that um, there, there is a choice that's best for your family and it's really um, for you to figure out what that is. But for me, um, I kind of touched a little bit about my situation. Again, um, our children have special needs and a lot of those support services are in person. We just haven't done any of them. Some of them we just dropped completely over the last few months here, you know, and we need to start picking some of those things back up. Jackie Turner, who is the COO, uh, co-CEO of St. Paul Public Schools, she did say on that broadcast, and you, um, our listeners can find this on YouTube at 3 Hmong TV. Um, it's partially in Hmong, and if you want to listen uh, listen in, the last part is, is mostly English. Um, Jackie Turner did say, whatever choice you make for your family is the right one. Um, and, and was trying to make that very clear. I, uh, I don't have children, I have fur babies, uh, but I have a lot of teachers in my family and I have a lot of parents in my family. And um, a lot of the information we're given, like Dr. Michael Osterholm had said, 
is that, oh, you know, children won't get it so seriously. The symptoms won't be as bad. Um, so they're thinking, well, what about us? What about us teachers? Uh, yeah, we have to wear PPE, but we're wearing PPE for eight hours a day. Um, we're trying to connect with students. It makes it hard. I mean, um, what are some of the ways that, that St. Paul is, is looking at those things, Jim? Well, the guidance that we are given is by uh, Minnesota Department of Education and Minnesota Department of Health. And a lot of that is outlined in Governor Walsh's safe learning plan by which we take and we adapt. Communications that I've had was to, for our superintendent to demonstrate to our families that these guidelines are being followed. You know, that's really the only way we can make a case for any kind of safety that's going on in the school buildings, you know, that the practices we put in place are guided by the leaders who are most informed about these issues, such as um, the spread of COVID-19 and how education is supposed to be happening during a COVID-19 environment. The health concern side of, you know, and the choice, right? So St. Paul's making a saying, hey, let's let the parents make their choice. That's great. I love that. One of the challenges then that come in is the next phase, right? So we're making the choice not to send our kids back because regardless of whether or how serious or not kids get it, that's the immediate concern. But we have no understanding of the long-term effect of having COVID in the first place. And so we're going to opt out. We've made it this far. We see that we, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to shoot for winning this contest. And that's kind of how we talk about it in this family. But um, we're in a situation where um, having the choice to be able to go back to school. So therefore, I can go back to the job is bringing up some very interesting concerns with with folks in my in, in my you know, friend circle who are saying, well, you had the option to send your kids to school. You're the one who chose not to do it. So you're no longer getting this accommodation from us. Um, you need to come back to work and figure that out because you chose not to send your kid to school. And they're wondering, what can I lean on? Is there continued state guidance that says that employers have to continue to work with you? Like, and so there's there's all of these different, you know, reverberating questions that are also at play. That just, it makes it hard for anybody making decisions about what to do, right? So I think it makes sense that St. Paul is saying, I'm going to leave this parent, this choice up to you as parents. But that also, there's still other things that are still on the table to have to figure out. I think one thing is, uh, you know, wondering about, well, I know that the St. Paul Teachers Union uh, was having a lot of, in Minneapolis as well, was having a lot of conversations about maybe not going back or going or, you know, partial or what. Uh, in Washington State, a school district filed a motion to force educators back to work when the, the uh, union decided not to. The judge did deny that motion. And then in Chicago, the teachers union voted to not return to in-person school. And so there's a little bit of a conflict there too. And so uh, when we're looking at teachers uh, and all their concerns, Jim, how, how is that affecting uh, the planning of trying to reopen in-person learning in St. Paul? So in terms of the planning, um, our teachers get 10 days to prepare their classrooms for in-person learning. Now, in that 10 days, they are, they are not only expected to prepare their classrooms, but um, sort of train themselves and be up to date about PPE guidelines and the prospects of teaching in a classroom with PPE and how their building is going to look like, almost just to familiar, familiarize themselves with that um, process going forward, right? Now, what I could say is that we are, we as a district are going, are moving as planned. You know, the teachers are in buildings, 
they're preparing. I love the I love the sound in the background. That makes it so real. <laughs> you get a little taste of my distance learning. Right, right. So yes, um, the teachers are in the classroom. They are preparing their rooms. Uh, at this point, that's all I know. You know, I can't say what the teachers' union is going to do, what they're not going to do. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Hali Lee with crew members Don Eubanks and Anthony Galloway and our special guests Daniel Perez and Jim Vu. We receive support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So, Daniel, what is your experience as a, a staff in a school district? Yeah, thank you for your question because as I'm listening to Jim, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how are the processes similar and how are they different? And they're pretty similar. But I think, you know, one of the pieces that I think about as an educator and as a parent as, and as a human being, we all living in this country are bombarded and we swim in white supremacy. So we're taught to live it and breathe and re- replicate it, perpetuate it, and hopefully also disrupted as we grow and learn. And I think about the dynamics between districts and um, unions and even families, right? That right now there's a top-down approach to the way we do business. And that many times uh, the people making the decisions say that they're integrating feedback from the community, whether that's parents or whether that's the educators that they employ. As an educator who's employed at a district, I see that huge disconnection and that animosity between parties and that top-down approach, which has not the greatest results and consequences. And so my district has chosen like St. Paul to give parents a choice, which I'm happy about. Parents should have the choice. And on my particular setting, over 50% of families are choosing to stay in distance learning. Uh, my school is predominantly black and brown, over 90% black and brown families. There is those layers of uh, poverty and access and racism towards immigrants and black and brown indigenous folks at my school. You name it, you know, the oppression is palpable. And then you add the uh, COVID and you add the challenges of distance learning. And then you add the challenges of how is the school district going to manage um, in-person learning? And I think for me as an educator, I wasn't given a choice whether to return. Um, Sure, they said you can request an accommodation. Well, the CARES Act expired on December 31st and I could have requested an accommodation and I did, but then I didn't get a response for months. And then they said they were gonna reopen, you know, in in November and then they chose not to. Um, and that was the right choice, I believe. And so now here we go again, and we are definitely going back uh, in February. And now I'm in this boat where my choice is to push against the district and be like, look, I cannot qualify for an ADA accommodation. I cannot qualify for an FMLA leave because my mom doesn't need my care. And my wife is already home and she had to decrease her employment in order to care for the boys. I'm gonna ask you for a personal unpaid leave. And if they don't approve it, then I'm going to resign. And I'm in a financially privileged uh, position to be able to consider that. Many families aren't, but for me, safety is precedent. If you don't have safety, learning doesn't happen. Well, we need to get back to school Sure, I see that many families need 
the respite and the care that and responsiveness that that schools provide, I get that. I get that we can be a safe haven with a lot of routines and food and comfort and guiding adults. When we as adults and educators are not feeling like our safety is being taken care to the 10th degree that it's needed to, it, it can be very disempowering, discouraging, anxiety producing. And as the people planning the return and figuring out all those details, you know, those nuances, uh, of what it means to return to in person, that's when anxiety can be very paralyzing. How do you deal with a kiddo who's dysregulated, who wants to run out of the building? Do you embrace them? Do you, can you block them? Which rooms do you take them to if they're throwing things, if they're wanting to you know, be big in their feelings? Like I'm working at an elementary school. That's what my kiddos did before the pandemic, right? And now I can't be near them right? But it's all those pieces that we don't have guidance about. Why? Because educators haven't really been at the planning and, 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 and really guiding these decisions. Educators and parents haven't really been as consulted as we could have been. One of the things that Daniel brought up was interesting to me, if what you, what you understand from your district about how many parents are choosing virtual learning, and is that helping you on the in-person side because of the number balance? I can't tell you a specific percentage of but the majority of our parents are choosing in-person learning. Okay. So it's not that 50-50 split. If we break it down by race, <laughs> you might you might get closer to that 50-50 split, but overall, right, it's um, the majority of our family are choosing in-person learning. Thank you, Jim. I know you are a busy man, especially during this time. And so I want to thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate hearing from everybody here. We're talking about the continuation of in-person learning um, that is now being allowed for K-12 schools in Minnesota. Um, and so, Anthony, what are, your, what are some of your thoughts around the percentage of parents who are choosing to have their students return to in-person classes? A lot of these um, uh, assumptions and assertions that have been made in media and made in, in the conversations that are happening in certain circles are just not what I'm hearing directly from folks who are living it. And so one of the things that I'm finding out, because we're not sending our kids back into the school, we're already set into a routine and all of that, and we didn't want to disrupt that especially given that we may have to come back to virtual learning if there's huge spikes because the, the vaccine's not proliferated yet. Um, and what I'm finding out is that a whole lot of parents of color are making a similar choice. And the assumption that we're giving on the front end of this and that was being talked about ahead of time is that a lot of uh, parents of color, particularly parents of color who, who, um, who, who aren't affluent, who don't have, you know, work flexibility are, are likely going to send their kids back to school. And we're finding that a lot more parents of color are making the choice to stay in distance learning. And then and that, that tracks are pre we've previously recorded around COVID and looked at the risk factors in communities of color being higher and all of these things. And so when I heard um, the school board member uh, in St. Paul, Jim Vu, um, you know, make reference to the majority of the district, you know, what he said was that the majority of the district is choosing to go back to in-person learning. Right. Which is not our choice as parents. But if we were to uh, to um, disaggregate that data um, racially, 
that whole that that understanding of that would he would probably be closer to fifty percent. And this is what I'm hearing from several other districts as well that a much higher number than I expected of families of color are choosing not to go um, back to in person learning. And so. Just for me, there's no way that we're going to keep kids distant in the ways that our hopes are telling us um, is, is true with full classrooms. However, hearing that a high number are choosing virtual learning, Daniel, to, to, to the point that you raised with your school or the school that you, that you work at, um, having a 50-50 split, that's not the case for everybody. But hearing a 50-50 split, that now makes me go, okay, well, if enough families are choosing virtual learning, that does open up. Um, more space and, uh, you know, does open up a scenario where, where it makes me go, huh, that might actually work, you know, to do some kind of social distancing, but the exposure risk numbers, when I'm doing that math in my head as a parent who doesn't want their kids to get COVID at all, it, it, it just doesn't work. The math doesn't add up for me. This all revolves around this issue of the coronavirus and how deadly it is for our communities, you know, for our brown and black communities. On top of the choice for parents to have to decide whether to send their kids back to school or not, is uh, this vac- the vaccinations or the lack thereof. Our people are dying at much higher rates than other groups in the United States uh, because of health care disparities and many po- and, and other different factors. Those who have who are now being forced to go back to the classroom, accommodations weren't made to have those individuals get the vaccine prior to having to come back to the classroom. And that just literally blows me away. And while I am a supporter of our, you know, the current uh, administration here in Minnesota, I do think that the CDC's decision to open that up um, kind of overrode what the state of Minnesota may have had in mind in terms of how they were trying to do an equitable distribution of those vaccines. And they collided at the same time there were decisions made to have children go back to the classroom. And it creates an environment that people like Daniel have to choose between keeping their job and their livelihood and taking care of their family or going in and taking the risk of getting sick. And that is absolutely, totally unacceptable. This is Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with crew members Don Eubanks and Anthony Galloway. And our guest sitting in today is Daniel Perez. We receive support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. We had asked for folks to call in and share their thoughts and experiences around this topic. Let's take a listen to an educator. Hi, um, this is an educator who I like to say is a mother first, um, located in the metro area. As an educator, I understand the importance of our students learning in person. As a parent, however, I understand the importance of staying home. If I had to choose which role is most important to me, I would choose parents. I have a lower risk of dying staying home while teaching online than teaching in person. We can gain back the education lost during the pandemic, but we cannot gain back the life lost during the pandemic. While our families truly do get a choice between in-person or distance, teachers do not. Let me repeat, teachers do not. 
ask your districts how they are finding the loophole for the vaguely worded guidelines in the governor mandate because, as I've mentioned, I would choose distance teaching for the sake of my own family, yet I am currently teaching in person. If the vaccines are so close for educators, why are we rushing to get them back in person? We have been doing distance learning this long. What would a few more weeks do? Are our children going to gain back what we believe they have lost during the last months? Why not work on improving what distance learning program needs to reach our most vulnerable groups of learners right now? Or find an alternative for those particular students? Do my own children not deserve a healthy mother as the parent who chose distance learning for the well-being of their family? Another frustrating factor is the rollout of the vaccine. Most of us literally just went back either last week or this week. And in the same week, the vaccine program also gets rolled out. Seems it should have gone the other way around if the time frame was so close. And can I also just add that spring break is around the corner? I can tell you that at my school, well, you know, less than 50% of families are coming back. That also means that we need to have two teams, a team that's going to be teaching distance learning and a team that's going to be teaching in person. And while Anthony made a point earlier about like, well, that might be good for like social distancing and all those things. I'm like, yes, in theory, but we're all being mandated to work from our site, not our, not at home. And if you didn't get an accommodation, you're supposed to be at school. So you're supposed to find a classroom, an office or whatever, a space that kiddos might not be able to occupy anymore. And then some classrooms are having 20 kids in them for the in-person teacher. So you have 21 bodies plus maybe an assistant. So like 22 bodies in a classroom. So even the ones who will teach online are required to come back to the building? Yes. All of us who don't have accommodations or a leave that's been approved, we have to teach from our buildings, even if your assignment is distance learning. And this is one of the things that the te the teachers union in my district um, was trying to bring up. Like, how are you working with this? Daniel, I got a message today, an email today from my daughter's um, school saying that, you know, she's virtual learning and he, in introducing me to her teacher, who's a guest teacher because of the point you made about having to have two teams. And so they have a guest teacher until they can find somebody permanent. Um, and that's going to be an and she's going to be in a fourth and fifth grade mixed group doing fifth grade curriculum, but mixed together. So it's kind of a nod to the schoolhouse, uh, uh, you know, approach. But but that's going to change as well. It just it, it seemed like it was going to be just keep them on distance learning. They've got that routine and they're going to keep going in there. And instead, what we're finding is. It's going to be a little different. They're going to get a new person and that what they do in their distance learning is going to have a different setup. So it's not just dis it's, it's not just a seamless um, continuation of what they've gotten used to. A week from now, the numbers in the deaths may rise because we don't have the vaccines to a point that we have to go on another lockdown. And then we have everybody's going home and readjusting all together again. And it just seems like a whole lot of movement and resource when we, we could have focused very much more on who absolutely needs the building. And we finished the year out. And then we got the whole summer to prep and clean and do everything we need to and get more people vaccinated so that the fall looks very different. 
So another uh, another call we got was uh, from a teacher who is um, in a suburb here in the metro. And let's just take a listen to what she had to say. I am deeply concerned about um, the directive for school buildings to open up for business again. Um, distance learning is not ideal, but the multiple transitions back and forth are more detrimental and disruptive of student learning and relationships. In addition, the environment that students will return to pushes the progress of American schools back. Teachers will be expected to police the distance between students, police their mask wearing, walk in regimented lines. It is not an experience I would want my child of color to associate with school. My suspicion is that Walt folded on school guidelines in order to get students in the building to take standardized tests. Tests that conform to a white supremacist culture that our nation should get rid of anyway. These tests continue to tell us that our BIPOC kids are underperforming on standardized tests that the white majority have deemed appropriate or measures their success. Bam. Can't argue with that. <laughs> Bam. There's so much in what they said. She highlights another interesting twist that we all have to deal with, you know, because I was sitting here thinking, well, you know, why why did the administration kind of cave on this particular issue? And and there's so many different ways you can you can look at this. And so that was one perspective. And I, I think one of the maddening things for me during this entire process is how politics gets kicked into this and political decisions are made not based on science. This decision to to uh, return to schools was a political one. There was a lot of pressure from the dominant culture to open up schools, and and um and I think that in order to manage um, and weigh this against the impact of the economic impact the state is experiencing, um, in terms of businesses closing, and I so I think that you know politics played a large part into this. And um, but to hear that teacher, you know, just bam, put it out there, um, you know that it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue against. Daniel, I saw your face when when she was going in. I will say, yeah, my face lit up because I I thought that she was speaking the darn truth of if we continue measuring learning according to these assessments that are rooted in white supremacy and a and a standard that it's not for black indigenous people of color of course our kiddos gonna be behind and let's not kid ourselves our schools were not always safe for kiddos of color when they were open so we're trying to return them to an environment that not be the safest because of covid when there's even more increased anxiety we adults don't have the emotional regulation and safety reassurance that we need in order to be at the forefront of our brain. What is that going to do to our relationships? What is that going to do to our mental health? This is Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with crew members Don Eubanks and Anthony Galloway. And our guest sitting in today is Daniel Perez. We receive support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This show, when we ask for input from the public, I learned so much. I mean, there are things I didn't think about. You know, granted, I'm not a parent. Um, and so I don't know the ins and outs of this, um, but something that, that we've talked about is just the shuffling around, right? And how frustrating that must be for kids. 
Um, here is another parent um, who is another suburban parent of color who called in. My experience thus far with school, uh, the distance learning, the in-person learning has been very frustrating. Um, it was important that my children do full-time distance learning because my parents do help watch my children from time to time. And I feel like our district has especially done a terrible job with how they plan and resources the distance learning and in-person learning. Um, even though my children are full-time distance learning, every time there's a switch for the in-person program, the distance learning program has been affected. You know, we've had to adjust whether we're getting new teachers for my students or, you know, schedules change and then I have to change my schedule to meet it. Um, you know, my son has not been in school for four days because they had to shut down to plan for being back in person. And so it's just a strain. I, I just don't understand how the switching back and forth when we know that the situation is unstable um, is better educating our children. Um, so it's been a very frustrating situation um, all around. Yeah, I would like to respond because I think this this person, this caller, was so right to say, as parents, we are not being told what's in this sandwich, what what is in this meal that the district, whatever district is offering. But when I think about mine, there's no cap sizes to classrooms. So right now I can tell you, as educators talk, some educators have 38 kiddos in a distance learning classroom with multiple grades, third through fifth grade. Some educators, in-person educators are going to have 20 or more kiddos. And if more families choose to put their kiddos in in-person learning, are those classrooms going to get bigger, both distance learning and in-person? And, and it's this mess of like, we know that kiddos learn best through consistent, relationship-driven, and, and safe, predictable environments. And now it's a little bit disruptive and it's a little bit chaotic and we're going to wing it. Another colleague who, let's say, is teaching kindergarten as well is going to be the distance learning teacher for those families and kiddos who those families haven't perhaps met or dealt with, right? So kiddos are going to have a new educator. Families are going to have to get a new teacher, perhaps. I can't believe that you have 38 elementary school kids in one Zoom class. I mean, you know, I'm teaching in higher education. I have, our cohort is 24. And so that means that if everyone shows up, I can't see them on the same screen. So how do you manage 38 kids in a Zoom classroom? You can't. I, and I'm working with, you know, adults. And I'll ask a question and no one answers the question. I mean, you know, so hopefully I think, you know, kids might be more engaged but as an educator, I can't keep track of 38 little squares on my screen. That I don't know how they're doing that. I mean, that, that blows me away. My kids' teachers were figuring this out, Don. They were figuring it out to the point where my kids were getting excited about lessons. They were breaking it apart. The groups were much smaller. They would get everybody together for something that everybody needed to hear. But when it came down to the draw, drill down pieces, they had special, like they had gotten, they had started to get not only to a routine, but they started to get my kids to push into areas where they were, they were actually getting some, some, some challenge and, and having to, so, so, I would much rather put my time and energy into keeping moving to to that parent's point 
with the consistency that was there than having it be than having it be disrupted. We're getting we're we're waiting for the vaccines, and so this is what we're going to do. It, we were starting to get into a groove before now. My daughter's going to have a new teacher. My son's probably going to have have new teachers. We don't know if this what the schedule is going to look like, and and it's just it just seems like we're doing a whole lot to to Daniel's point earlier for uh you know two and a half months, you know ostensibly of of in person time that's not going to solve the bigger get. I would much rather spend that time doing whatever enrichment can can really focus on what we focus on in my in, in my household, and that is teaching thinking. If if our tests were testing thinking, that'd be a whole different thing. Neil deGrasse Tyson goes on ad nauseum about this. Um, if I spell a word mostly correct, I'm still mostly correct, but our testing environment is set up that you're wrong. I'm with the consistency all day. This is a parent who called in um, from Maplewood to share her experience. Um, my thoughts on the schools reopening, it's just too uncertain. There's just too many uncertainties with the way that the virus is mutating and the teachers not being vaccinated. And my child will not be going back to school until um, everyone is vaccinated and it's just not safe. And if the kids are going and they're coming into contact with other children and who knows what other connections these kids are making outside of school and taking things home to families and other vulnerable adults that are living in the households. Like for us, we're living with grandparents and it's just not safe right now for her to go back to school. In addition to my day job as a consultant, I, I also run a center, right? And we provide after school and out of school time learning. And one of the things that we just could not square is not only do we have to worry about our social distancing at the center and, and needing to ostensibly be open if schools are going to be open because kids need an after school. Like that, that other part of the equation also has to be in the mix. But we're overrepresented in risk factors because we're a center for the African diaspora. So the vast majority of our kids are kids of color, particular African-American kids or, or black kids. And so now we have to factor that in and i have to factor that one kid is coming in to mix with other kids from several other schools and so again you do the math and the exposure risk for community it just does not play out in a way that parents are even saying i would send my kid there you know figure out something social distant to do because it's it's not going to work and i have to square that out myself uh, a lot of the folks who who called into the our hotline um, which is something that we'd love to to leave open um, for continuous calls from our listeners, um, was from um, a dad in St. Paul. And another thing that I hadn't thought about was his, his kids are in language immersion. And just how different the experience has been for him. So let's take a listen to what he had to say. I'm thinking that reopening of in-person learning, for me at this time, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. We, as Adults in our society have had trouble keeping our distance and doing social distancing, and we're expecting our small children to be able to do this. And while I understand it's an economical issue as well, you know, getting the parents back so they can work and speeding up the uh, growth of the economy and trying to rebound, I don't think it should come at the cost of our children. Now, my children are in... Uh, immersion programs. So 
a kindergartner trying to learn a new language where he can't even see the mouth of the teacher who's speaking to him and then being told that he can't hug his teacher or interact physically with anyone else is going to be extremely challenging. And I don't want to set him up for failure and teach him that he is less important than the economy. For me, you know, keeping my children home, while it's not ideal and teaching a um, student when I'm not a teacher who's in the immersion program for a language I don't speak is still much, much more important than sending them back and setting them up for failure and setting the precedent that money is more important than them. That one resonated with me. And it was because there was this one instance where I was leaving for kindergarten. My dad was at the front door. I ran up to give my dad a hug. And my dad kind of grabbed my shoulders and gently moved me back. And he said, men don't kiss, we shake hands. And so he shook my hand, right? My recollection of that and what I've always kind of carried with me was this rejection, right? Now, I mean, I heard what he said, but not being able to hug him and kiss him at that time, for me as a four-year-old going to kindergarten, overrode what I was hearing him say. And that kind of put a wound in my my psyche that to this day, hearing that dad talk about how children have a hard time understanding why they can't hug their, te- their teacher, I mean, that resonates with me. I mean, that resonates because we're all social beings. And my father did nothing wrong But when you're that young and when you're that, as a social creature, needing that touch, I mean, that that one really did resonate with me. I mean, I that one just shook me to the core of my of of, of who I am. And later, later on, he said, um, you know, I need to make sure that my child um, my child doesn't, you know, or having to process and deal with the fact that my child is getting a lesson that the economy is more important than him. That, that, that's got me all the way back to policy decisions that we made and didn't make um, to, you know, if the economy is, is, is that much of, of a challenge, then we should have been looking at a financial stability, stabilization, focusing on the folks who have no choice. Because the 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 that is re- is coming full circle to me hearing this last parent speak, is there are folks who do not have a choice, all right? They've got bills to pay, and so they're like, "This is the risk we're going to have to take," and we're just going to hope upon hope, and and they no longer get to access the same choices that that we have spoken that we get to make, um, and that is to 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 either not work or to adjust schedule in a way that keeps distance lear- learning going. Um, you know, where where's the creativity that we could have had? Where's the creativity if the social thing is an issue, then what would it look like for a district to completely get behind organizing working with community centers, places, you know, gathering for a small group pod to have some social interaction. A mitigated risk, yes, but not very different than 20 people in a classroom. Where is the creativity around, you know, figuring out how to to take folks who may have to not be able to work 
all right, can we background check them and give them some some tools not to do the teaching necessarily, but to do the connection and supervising? You know how many college students um, who who can't work in the traditional jobs that they could because of this COVID-19? I've got a Rolodex of them who've graduated from the Center for the African Diaspora that would be excellent um, space keepers for a small group of four to five kids. And we just like there's just a level of creativity that we seem to bypass to to focus on things that do, unfortunately, what that parent just said, that teach our kids that the economy is more important to, than them. And some of the like there's it, it, I know we're all making hard choices. So I'm not I'm not pushing that away. I'm just saying, are we also thinking about the choices that we're making as a result of these choices? And and so that's back onto the table. You know, what do I say to the parent who can't afford to to distance learning have to have some place for their kids to be. This is another call from a parent uh, in Minneapolis. Let's take a listen. My thoughts about children returning back to in-person, it's not a matter of whether or not we think it is safe or we think that we should. It is a matter of recognizing that we are facing both a health crisis and a mounting educational crisis at the same time. And from my perspective, I really feel as though we should center the concerns and or needs and desires of families and students of color in this decision foremost. So here for Minneapolis Public Schools, about just a little bit uh, under half of our families of color really feel like they need their students back in school. And I believe that it is time to center their experiences and their choices. They've been underserved and ignored for a long time. So in a moment like this, I think it's a unique opportunity to honor their needs first. Thanks for listening. The point that that caller really gets at is saying, okay, what is the overall need? And I think this should have been the question when we thought about distance learning in the first place. I'm an, an out-of-school time uh, person. I'm a, I'm a youth worker and and things like that. Um, my measurements of what a kid needs to bring to the summer camps after school, all the things that we do, is very different than what the school requires. And oftentimes, it it makes up the difference from what school requires. Kids come to my space and they breathe for the first time because a kid who is striking out in all the ways that school is telling them they're not doing well, they come to the center or they come to the church because I'm I'm on the pastoral staff, um, and we don't have any of the same behavioral or or cognition problem. All right, so what is it that allows them to perform for us in ways that they're not in others? And I I would have loved for that to be the center of the whole distance learning conversation, project based, creating things around the world. This kind of stuff that my kids were just getting was starting to really show up in their distance learning that now I'm scared is going to be disrupted again because they had hit a groove that would have taken us to June and then they would have been back back to school when the vaccines were here in the fall. That worked for us. This is not. That I don't feel like that parent said that that was the center of the discussion. When we don't acknowledge that schools, even pre-COVID, were not servicing our kiddos as best as they could, particularly Black, Brown, Indigenous folks, right? What is the rush to get to in-person learning when there is not necessarily a plan that's been coordinated from educators and parents and, and, and district leaders. Quote-unquote, learning loss, if I just name it in white supremacist ways, has been happening in our communities for forever because that's not what we want to be learning about. 
we don't see ourselves represented in those curriculums or those standards. So when I think about what the color was talking about, it's, well, yeah, 50-50, 50% of people of color said they, they'd like to come back. How could districts have approached this process of reopening in a way that served the most um, underserved families, the most needy for, the, for services, educational services, while also keeping staff safe? I also know that many times we talk about like, oh, we need to worry about people who are being underserved or we need to focus our needs uh, on families of color. And that can be coded language for scapegoating people. I can pick up the phone and advocate for my family. You don't need to do that on my behalf. <laughs> Thank on, you very come much. Come on, come on. <laughs> so, so I also have to be conscientious about like, well, that caller... I'm going to assume good intent, but also advocating for that. Who does it really serve, right? Because our districts are predominantly being led by people who are white, who typically are male, who typically don't live in the neighborhoods where our kiddos attend school. And, and so, like, I also want to name that, that piece of in education, leaders can be so predominantly male, so predominantly white, so predominantly affluent, so predominantly XYZ outliers in our communities, yet they are the head people who are making decisions that impact predominantly families of color. Well, Daniel, it was so nice to have you join us. I really hope that you can join us again. Not that I, I don't miss Luz, but it was so, it was just, I mean, just getting the perspective of, of dads and and in education, all of you guys and working with youth, all of you guys, um, I've learned so much doing this particular show and we want to say thank you to Jim Vu from the St. Paul Public School Board for joining us. You have been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group. Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of Arts Us and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. This is Daniel Perez, school social worker at an elementary school in Minneapolis and a loving brown father and brown husband. Thanks for joining us. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>